0: Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast, where we study authoritarianism and how authoritarians think and uh, the strategies they face in order to better resist. I'm Ahmed Gatnash, and today I'm joined by Joy Ayoub, who is a Lebanese writer and researcher, and Timur Azhari, a Beirut-based journalist. And we're going to be talking in a little more detail about uh, the recent events in Lebanon uh, which a lot of people are seeing as the continuation of the Arab Spring, the Arab Spring two point oh, maybe even the Arab Spring three point oh. I don't know what Western journalists are calling it these days. Um, you guys are both on the ground. Um, it's been going for a little over a week, I think, maybe two weeks. How how has it been?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, today we are on we are on day sixteen uh, of of this uprising. People are calling it a revolution. Uh, you, you can pick the terminology you want, but uh, w- what's certain is that yes, we are we are on day sixteen of an unprecedented uprising across Lebanon. Uh, in uh, it's been uh, you know scores of, of towns and villages across the country that have uh, you know and and cities that have that have risen risen up in the past sixteen weeks. They've successfully brought down <laughs> government. Um, and they're continuing to to ask for more there you know it's uh, everything from anti-corruption to basically a change in in the political class that has ruled the country since its civil war 30 years ago and we actually hit the 30-year anniversary very recently so it's uh, it's uh, it's a very uh, it's a very interesting time
0: i've got to confess um, personally since a few years ago i always thought that uh, Lebanon would probably be the last place in the entire region to see this. And the reason for that is because it's such an entrenched political order masquerading as a democracy, uh, when it's actually um, a sectarian patronage. So um, Lebanon has a confessional system, which is basically representation by sect in the parliament, uh, with political roles divided up bisect as well. The Speaker is traditionally Christian, I think. The Prime Minister is traditionally Sunni. The President is traditionally Um, Shia. The the President President. president
2: is Maronite and the Speaker of Parliament is Shia and the Prime Minister is Sunni, yeah. And uh,
0: parties basically uh, distribute power among themselves along those kinds of lines. Um, And it's been so deeply entrenched for such a long time. And the really incredible thing is that people are Demanding the end, not of an unpopular prime minister or a corrupt, uh, minister, but the end of the entire system. And they've been chanting, yani all of them means all of them. And also criticizing their own groups. So Sunnis criticizing the Sunni politicians, uh, Shia protesters criticizing the Shia politicians, etc which, um, seems to me to be, uh, a really unprecedented awakening of values among, uh, a critical mass, at least of, uh, Lebanese, not only youth, but a very broad cross section of society. How how much of that have I got right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I I would agree with that. Uh, The there are two main things really that like that have separated these protests from the previous ones. Uh, Obviously, twenty fifteen we had a big one as well, but the two main things is a that it's decentralized, and b which is I mean linked to that is that it's not it's not centered in Beirut, and that it's not. it's not actually organized, so it's, it's very spontaneous. So the fact that you have, uh, you know, the, the very symbolic things that have been happening, especially like a city in Tripoli in the north, sending its solidarity to a, a city in the region, uh, novelty in the south. Uh, these are things that, I mean, in my lifetime, we haven't really seen, uh, definitely not at the scale.
1: Yeah, definitely, and and I, I mean, you you spoke a little bit about you know uh, you know what has led up to this. I think it's important to note that this hasn't come completely out of a vacuum. We did have protests. You know, the last massive protest in Lebanon was really in two thousand five, and that was against the Syrian uh, you know occupation of Lebanon. Uh, but. The, the important thing is that that was really you know a certain section of society. It was uh, people who were opposed to the syrian presence and and basically that didn 't include a large swathe of the the Shia population We also yeah. had uh, We also had protests in two thousand and eleven which were uh, against the sectarian system and protests in two thousand and fifteen, which were really about mismanagement and centered in beirut uh, all of these were really centered in Beirut two thousand and five two thousand and eleven and two thousand and fifteen. Uh, and, and there were sort of the pre-rumblings uh, I, 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 of this massive, uh, unprecedented uprising that we've seen now, which, as Joey said, is just completely, you know, uncomparable on, on the scale of it and the solidarity we've seen across the country. And people who I've spoken to and again and again on the streets have basically spoken about a barrier of fear breaking. Uh, this barrier of fear which made people think, you know, we in the South uh, can't go to the north of the country because our, of our sect, or we Christians in Mount Lebanon, we can't go to the to the south because they're Shia and we're Christian, that barrier has, has fallen.
0: Um, so I want to get back to the sectarian angle and understand it a bit more, mm. but first I want to understand um, the scale of the corruption and incompetence by the entrenched political class So I only know a few snippets, like, for example, I've heard that Lebanon has had a garbage crisis since uh, around 2015. Um, There's been a breakdown in public services. Um, I'm aware that uh, uh, Saad Hariri, the the prime minister who just resigned under pressure, uh, is a billionaire and basically seems to have inherited his position from his father. Mm. Uh, uh, How deep does that go?
1: Joey, I think you, you could uh, take this one.
2: Uh, yeah, it goes very deep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, a lot of these politicians that are currently uh, in power now uh, are former warlords. So, you know, Ali Jumblat, Nabi Berre, uh, Michel Aung, the president, uh, was a general in the army. I mean, technically a warlord during the war as well. Samir Jarja, Liban- uh, leader of the Lebanese forces. And if they are not uh if they were not themselves warlords, they have inherited uh the political party from their uh parents or their uncles or whatever. So you have the Jmails and the Qatari Party, you have the uh, obviously Saad Hariri being the son of Rafik Hariri and so on. So this is a deeply, deeply, deeply entrenched uh, political system, and you already have today the older generation of uh the sectarian warlords however you want i, I just call them warlords and, and oligarchs because sometimes you know they're one or the other or both uh they are preparing their either their son-in-laws you know jebran basil the foreign minister being the son-in-law of the current president Walid Jumblatt preparing his i think son uh you know it's something that uh they're already sort of preparing but i think there is something to be said at the fact that that generation like the the generation of uh, warlords and everything that were most active in the 70s and 80s obviously um i don't know and maybe that's just the optimist in me i don't know if they're um let's call them offsprings the people that will inherit their power i don't know if they can mobilize the same amount of people that they have been able to do so far so the hope is that we're sort of in a transition phase and now we're building the grounds for what can take over once these people either pass away or just you know stop uh, being and, active in politics or whatever. And
1: just to go to to give you know listeners a sense of like the 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 way sect, you know sect, the way sectarian corruption are sort of intertwined in Lebanon, the scale of the corruption. Basically, you know, we had the civil war. It was 15 years from 1975 to 1990. Uh, And and then after the civil war, you basically had these warlords, you know, take off their military fatigues, put on suits and ties, enter government, enter the parliament. And each of these, you know, we we basically have six or seven big sort of uh, political leaders. And and each of them projects this image of themselves as the uh, chief uh, of a particular religious sect, you know, as the person who protects the interests of a particular religious sect. So if you're Sunni, you have to support Hadiri. Because if you want to position, you know, a certain job, who do you call? You call Hadiri or, you know, a, a representative of Hadiri to try to get you a position in a certain ministry or, or even, you know, at a bank that's affiliated with Hadiri. Uh, it can even be, you know, a mall that's affiliated with Hadiri. Uh, so, so that's the way it sort of works here. The the, the Lebanese system is is based on you know sectarian uh, the 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 mediation of of sectarian leaders in securing basic services what the state can't provide the sectarian leaders can help citizens get uh, and that's the way they've sort of entrenched themselves and basically entrenched corruption as well uh, in, in the state
0: and how badly has the state failed at uh provision of basic services i mentioned well, the garbage crisis I mean, well yeah
1: since the civil war we we haven't had 24 7 electricity uh, there were brief periods where for example beirut would have 24 7 electricity uh, but right now as we stand uh, lebanon has a massive uh, deficit of energy production we we simply haven't built enough power plants uh, over the past uh, decades to secure enough uh, power for the people and so we have uh, basically a parallel black market uh, that has developed where, you know, people pay private diesel generators, uh, you know, diesel generator owners. And so citizens are paying two, you know, or Re- Lebanon residents are paying two electricity bills. It's the same with water. Uh, you know, there's water is not provided by the state around the clock. So you have to pay a private water provider. And And the fun part of all of this is that a lot of the time, those private providers are politically connected. Uh, and so you have politicians or people affiliated with them making a buck off of their own mismanagement of the state. Uh, And this is something we see throughout all sectors, throughout garbage, you know, we have some of the highest costs for garbage disposal in the world. Uh, And uh, and there's really nothing to show for it. Uh, This is the issue, right? Is we we also have some of the highest telecoms costs in the world, but services don't match, uh, services don't match the price. And it's basically because you have a business cartel who are given you know awarded you know the contract through tenders that aren't carried out transparently and and you basically have a situation now where you have a highly indebted Lebanese state that really doesn't have anything to show for all of that debt it's accumulated
0: And the central bank is warning of imminent collapse in the last few days. Well, yes,
1: the central bank governor warned of imminent collapse. He then walked back those comments. Um, But there is sort of consensus that Lebanon is really getting to the edge of a financial cliff. I mean, I'm no economist, but basically Lebanon has the third highest debt to GDP ratio in the world. It has something like $89 billion uh, in debt. Uh, And at the same time, its economy has been stagnant for the past eight, nine years due to the Syrian war next door and other factors. Uh, And and at the same time, you have a slowdown in in money coming in from abroad from Lebanese, which is really a staple of the economy here. There's many Lebanese abroad who send back billions of dollars a year. There's a slowdown in those funds because of the situation in the country. And so you have these factors coming together to really create uh, a a brewing economic crisis uh, in the country. And, and you know, this kind of sets us up for, for what led us to the protests in a way, because with this economic crisis, the government has tried to impose austerity measures to try and you know, get the budget under control but uh, the recent attempt to impose new taxes, you know a hike on the VAT uh, and a, a you know a tax on whatsapp really what people were sort of just like, are you serious?" Uh, and, and that's when we saw this massive outpouring.
0: And uh, typically quite typically the tax on whatsapp is the only thing or the only part of all of this context which caught the eye of many journalists who are now calling it WhatsApp protests. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting how Julia, you've mentioned uh, the fact that uh, a lot of these uh, warlords turned uh, political leaders slash oligarchs are grooming their sons to take over after them um, because that's the exact same fault line um, which caused uh, a breakage in so many other countries. Uh, you know, Egypt, uh, uh, discontent over uh, Mubarak's sons uh, was one of the factors that led to 2011. Libya, Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, uh, outraged at him, fueled the protests and his uh, incompetence at handling the situation. Even Syria, a lot of the roots of the 2011 uprising uh, began with organizing uh, 11 years earlier when uh, Bashar al-Assad came to power. Again, in this region, we're just watching history repeat itself over and over again
2: yeah and uh the thing really that separates lebanon in a sense i mean part of i think part of the reason why uh i mean the main reason why as you said before many people weren't really expecting that lebanon would join this trend is because we don't really have a regime to fight we just have multiple smaller ones that sort of work with one another and you know when we say that the government is very inefficient it is but it's very efficient for a certain number of people the system works. The reason why it hasn't collapsed is that it does work for a percentage of the population, including people who are, uh, you know, not really working class or not really middle class, but sort of in between, because they, you, you end up having a sort of uh, community networks. I shouldn't call them community networks, but that's kind of how they function, where you have, you know, a top boss from somewhere or Hariri or someone under him or next to him or whatever paying someone below him and that that person pays a certain number of people below them and that that sort of just reinforces the system and so there are people who are benefiting in a sense but it's not like they're benefiting in their billions and billions, they're just benefiting a bit more than they would have otherwise because living conditions are so bad in the first place It basically sounds like the
0: entire state is structured like a mafia family that's, that's a collection it, of them.
2: Yeah, that I mean I, I would agree with that uh, honestly That's that's pretty much how uh, the system works, uh, you know, sim- symbolically one of the reasons why people, like when we have been uh, prote- I mean, blocking the roads, uh, some people would complain about it, obviously, like how can we get to our jobs and that sort of thing. But then protesters would uh, respond with two simple examples that whenever it rains, the roads are blocked anyway. And whenever the politicians have some party or some wedding or they want to just cross the road or whatever, they block the roads anyway. So at least now we're blocking the roads for a specific purpose and not just because of we don't have good roads or because politicians just want to pass.
1: I mean, the, the, the way the relationship between politicians and the people in this country works is they treat the people with contempt for years and then elections roll around and then they, you know, they'll start, they'll, they'll disperse a little bit of funds, you know, pay, pay people $100 to buy their vote. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that's, I mean, that's, that's the kind of level of, you know, that, that's the, the level of politics we're talking about here. And what Joey said about a certain, you know, group of people benefiting is extremely important because there are people who benefit. You know, you have the people at the top of the, pol- the political business class who really are making a killing. They're making hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, billions of dollars uh, just off, off of the back of the state. And then what you have is, you know, there's there's a class of people below that who are also earning money. But when you get down to the average man, they're really, you know, fighting over spoils here. And again, we're seeing this on the street now. We're seeing a lot of anger from people who used to follow politicians. Uh, and they're saying things like, you know, I followed this politician. I voted for him. And then when I needed him the most, when my father you know, was sick, when I needed a bed in hospital, they couldn't even get that for me. And so you're seeing this inter- interesting situation where, you know, people, people are <laughs> ex- becoming extremely disillusioned with politici- politicians who were supposed to provide them the things that the state is supposed to provide them. And the only reason this kind of system worked is because everyone was divided, right? You had people running behind their particular area politician, their zaim, as they're, as they're known, which translates roughly to a chieftain. Um, and and what you've seen now happen on the streets and why it's so important that, that people are on the streets together from across different communities is that n- now the, the argument is sort of becoming, hey, why isn't the state providing these things for us collectively? And everybody used to say that before, but it, it, you have to sort of stand up to these politicians for, you know, t- to collectively ask for that, uh, to, to create sort of a critical mass, you know, a, a weight uh, that, that can actually, you know, move towards achieving this, if, if you get what I'm saying.
0: And you have to also stand up against your own za'im first and foremost so that your protest isn't seen as uh, hypocritical by others. Um, And I've been seeing some people sharing interesting anecdotes online uh, about how in the past they've uh, even faced uh, physical intimidation and coercion to prevent them from speaking out against uh, their own sect's corrupt leader. Um, Is that um, a specific thing that they, they policed particularly hard in the past?
1: i mean there's there's definitely uh, again from from being on the streets i mean i've been on the street every single day for the past 16 days since this began and i've i've heard a uh, a lot about this uh people uh, especially i mean for uh, especially from the shi'a community you know it, i mean I, I don't like to speak in sectarian terms but this is the way that it, it sort of is uh you know the, especially from the shi'a community because uh, I, you know, I would hang out in areas that are sort of like on the border between downtown Beirut and and Shia suburbs. You get a lot of people coming there, and and as a, as I would stay there throughout the night, we we have open conversations, and people would say, yes, I mean, you know, I I can come here and protest with you, but when I go back to my community, uh, I have to deal with the out the fallout of that, right? Uh, and and this is something that's historically been the case. Uh, and and sort of you know when you when you're in a in a small area uh, with you know familial and friends tie friend you know friendship ties and you've grown up there and you live there uh, and and there's a certain party that's prominent there it's very hard to defy that party uh, but what we are seeing now and what I've heard on the streets is that many people are actually doing this uh, you know people are saying the most important thing is that <laughs> I am here and I and I'm no longer scared uh, and 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 people really are paying the price I mean in the south. You know, in Beirut, it's one thing, but in South Lebanon, for example, we've had many people come out in an area where Hezbollah really, before this revolution, was thought to have complete control, um, and, and much of the population sort of wrote off the South as, as you know, being a sort of a bastion of any revolution at this point. But we've seen hundreds and thousands of, you know, thousands of people come out in the South um, and protest, and they've been shot at, they've been beaten, uh, but they continue to come out onto the streets.
2: Yeah, I mean, if I can, if I can add to that, one example that I can give, uh, obviously I won't name any names, but what's happening really now is also dividing families. Obviously, you have I have a cl- very close friend who is from a Shia family uh, in Dahieh, suburb of Beirut, and he hasn't spoken to his parents in a week now uh, because his parents uh, are very much for Hezbollah. They they have Al Manar, which is Hezbollah's channel, on you know 24/7. That type of situation. And if you only watch, it's not just on Manar. You have OTV, which is you know owns uh, uh, allied uh, aligned sorry uh, TV station MTV with the Lebanese forces, you know, etc. It's very difficult if that's the only thing. So I'll get sorry. I'll give a different example that ties into this one as well. When we were attacked, uh, I was attacked uh, about ten days ago or something, and Timur was uh, much uh, attacked in a much worse way. Uh, by these groups, as we call them, Shabihah in in Arabic, some of the things that they were saying about us uh, is scary. Like they were calling us Israeli agents, they were calling us uh, paid by the Saudis, they were calling us these things. And you have to wonder, like, obviously, where do they get all of this information? Uh, Because it's pretty ludicrous if you're on the ground every single day and you're talking to people, that's obviously as they are as anti-Israel and anti-Saudi Arabia and anti-Iran as it gets. But, you know, that's not the information that everyone gets in Lebanon because the media system is a a big, big part of the problem as well.
0: So we've mentioned Hezbollah uh, a couple of times briefly. Uh, Can we go into uh, their place in all of this and the role they've been playing?
2: Well, they're they're part of the government. Uh, They're one of the the main parties in government. Uh, So it is uh, in their best interest, if you want to put it that way for uh them to for the system to continue as it is and uh nasrallah has so far given two speeches in two weeks and he's going to give another one in a few hours so that's three speeches in about 16 days which is i think unusual and he's been uh saying things that uh have even shocked some of his uh followers which is definitely very interesting i mean i I, i'm no longer shocked by him but Uh, I guess if you are used to seeing him through a certain certain lens, uh, which I mean, I would go I would call it propaganda. But if you're if you're used to seeing it in a certain way, you sort of don't maybe expect him to say these things. But he's been saying things that are pretty horrible, like other than just conspiracy theories, like, you know, half of his speech, the other half being uh, what's the point? Like, you're not going to change the system. Uh, This this uh, Ahad, how do you translate Ahad? Mandate is not going to fall. Um, and so on and so forth. And then when Hariri actually resigned, because Hariri was in some ways the weakest link, I guess, uh, in that whole coalition, uh, there are some reports that it took uh, Hezbollah by surprise. Although I'm not, I don't know if it did. I mean, I wasn't surprised, so I don't know if they were surprised. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. I mean, we basically
1: what we had is is Hezbollah. You know, in in the beginning, you had really people from across Lebanon, and even people who supported certain parties like Hezbollah did take to the streets. Uh, it was just like a ma- massive outpouring of anger. And in his first speech, Nasrallah kind of uh, warned a little bit about the protests, but said, hey, uh, there, there, there are many demands that are, you know, uh, worthy and, and correct. And I understand why people are on the streets. But he said that the government will not fall. Right. So he, he aligned himself uh, directly with the, the government in power. And in the second speech, he did this even more definitively, definitively and he asked supporters to withdraw from the streets. Uh, so basically what we've seen is Hezbollah align itself entirely. And they were already in government with these people, right? But they, they've made, and managed, they managed to some extent to maintain a, a sort of image as the party that's a bit like removed from the rest of them. You know, Hezbollah is a party that only entered entered government, I think it was in two, after 2005, while while other parties have been in power for a very long time. And so they they maintain an image of like not having been part of the corruption that pervades the state. But what, re- what happened here is we saw Nasrallah really throw in his, you know, throw his weight entirely behind that post-war uh, political class. Uh, and from the conversations I've had on the streets, that's disillusioned a lot of people who were, Formerly completely supportive of the party, uh, or or people who even will say that Hezbollah, you know, is involved in corruption, has corrupt ministers, but they regard Nasrallah as a sort of figure who is aloof and removed from this, and uh, obviously has a religious significance as well. He's seen as a descendant of the prophet. Um, So, so that's that's kind of been Hezbollah in a way. I mean, we could summarize has really. basically collapsed, uh, you know, and it, it basically, it, you know, the, the divisions between the, the future movement of the prime minister, uh, the free patriotic movement of the president and, uh, you know, Hezbollah has, uh, the divisions between them have collapsed and they've kind of become this one block very clearly until Hadidi resigned and sort of defied Hezbollah. Um, and and now we're sort of in that phase of the rearranging of of Lebanese politics, where you know where we're looking at what's going to come next is Hariri going to be redesignated as prime minister because he needs Hezbollah or the party of the president uh, to uh, support him because he doesn't have enough support in parliament to actually be designated prime minister.
0: So. Um... To go to events on the ground from that. Uh, Obviously, it's been 16 days of mass protests on the streets. Um, Very inspiring, very full of hope, uh, very young, very energetic. And the response has been uh, the same as in every other Arab country following the standard tyrant response manual. Uh, Firstly, uh, cast doubts on them, call them uh, corrupt, looking for their own uh, benefits, say that they're Zionists or they're paid by the CIA or whatever. And ultimately, uh, violence and use of force to break up the rallies. And that's what happened. And that's what you were both caught up in, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, on uh, it was this Tuesday. So so last uh, Friday, uh, we saw a small scale like scuffle in, in happening in central Beirut in the Riyadh al-Sulah, which is a square right near the seat of government. Uh, a couple, I'd say a couple dozen Hezbollah and the Amal movement supporters, the Amal movement is an ally of Hezbollah. Uh, there were scuffles, they beat up some people, they clashed with riot police. Um, it, it was bad, but it wasn't horrible. Uh, fast forward to this Tuesday, uh, we see really, I mean, I think the biggest street brawls of this entire uh, you know, uprising. Um, it began sort of on this road that's been occupied by activists, by protesters. And and really just uh, you had several hundred uh, people uh, who who really did appear to be organised. I mean, I followed them around for three hours, and, and there were clearly people guiding them. You had these several hundred people really just beating everyone in their way who who was a, you know a protester and media, and that's the point at which I was punched in the face just for documenting this. Um, and then assaulted again later, you know, a photographer who works at the newspaper that I work at was also assaulted and, and many, many people in, in the media, journalists were assaulted uh, and many, many more protesters. Um, and and this came right ahead of Hadidi's resignation. So it, uh, it, it was seen in a way as uh, I mean, there's many you know, different analyses of this, but it was it was Hezbollah uh, and Amal really exercising brute force on the street in a way that we hadn't seen yet. Uh, they went down to the central square, Martyrs Square, and destroyed a protest encampment that's been there since the beginning of the protest. They set fire to it. Uh, they they stole things. Uh, this is, I've documented this all, and uh, then and security forces didn't intervene uh, for a long time. And then these people were eventually pushed back, just leaving destruction in their wake. The, the important thing to note here is that people very quickly rebuild, and there was really a spirit of defiance. Uh, they were basically saying, no, you will not crush us like this. Um, but yes, I mean, definitely we've seen that that move between in the beginning, they, they kind of they even tried to co opt the movement, you know, political politically, yeah, okay, you're right, and we'll do some reform. Uh, then they very quickly say, okay, you guys, you know, you're, 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 what you're doing is futile. Uh, and then as it goes on, they've resorted to more force. And the fear now is that more force will be used.
0: And do you see... Uh, any possibility of uh, what's happened in other countries where uh, security forces can be fully used uh, with live artillery or live ammunition sorry Uh, i mean joey do you want to take this one
2: yeah i mean i wouldn't say it's impossible but i i don't see it as a likely scenario just because i mean for many reasons a you don't have a centralized structure that, I mean, you do, but it's not as as prominent or as strong as, for example, in Syria or in Iraq or, or in Libya at the time, or obviously in Egypt. Uh, second thing is that the forces, the Lebanese, I mean, so I was going to call them the Lebanese forces. The security forces are not the most powerful forces in Lebanon. That That's Hezbollah. And the third reason is that it's too decentralized for them to really try something like this. And there is... Uh, a lot of creativity that's happening and there's always there is like it's been actually fairly surprising to see that um maybe it should not have been surprising but it's been definitely noteworthy that security forces have been relatively mild and i have to emphasize on relatively here it depends where they have been much much more brutal in the north than they have been in beirut um and in the south, I mean, they are pretty much one with Hezbollah and Amal anyway, so it's sometimes difficult to tell them apart. Um, uh, so I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far. Again, I don't think anything's impossible, but I think the likelier risk is for just infighting to happen. So the things that we're all sort of worried about, the sectarian clashes that are now being, or the sectarian mentality, if you want, or whatever, that are not that are now being uh, transcended. We don't know how far we can push it in a sense, before these forces fight back in a way that they haven't fighting back so far um, up until the revolution. At the same time, it's, even then, it's difficult to see how successful they would be compared to before. Like I'm not saying they wouldn't have any success, but there is something that, as Timo as was saying before, like the, the barrier of fear has been broken. And because you have overt uh, attempts by people in Tripoli, uh, that's why many people are calling it the capital of the revolution, uh, have been actively saying, like, uh, we are with you, Nabati, until the death. We are with you, Dahi, until the death. Akkar, Beirut, uh, you know, Ba'a, whatever. There is this attempt that I don't think the government will be able to fully, fully extinguish, regardless of what they do. And the fact that they haven't so far for me suggests that they have been worried about those specific things happening, like soldiers maybe not, uh, maybe refusing some orders or um, people mm-hmm. in the that north is- actually resisting, you know, that sort of thing. And I don't know if they want that because their priority is to quote-unquote stabilize things because they are waiting for quite a lot of money to be unlocked. Right. I think this
1: uprising presents a real strategic challenge for the normal repressive forces of both the state Uh, And, you know, militias uh, which are associated with people in the state and their thugs, because when you had centralized protests,
2: you
1: know, it's very easy to just go in and and crush something and and occupy the space. The problem here is that even on the day, you know, that day on Tuesday, when Hezbollah raided Beirut and and burnt down the encampment, say nobody came back, which is not the case. They did come back, but even say they didn't come back. You still had protests in over a dozen locations across the country. In Tripoli, you had thousands of people in the streets, and and so that's sort of the the beauty uh, of this uh, uprising compared to previous ones is that okay, it's it's like whack a mole. I mean, you can beat people down in one area, but then you quickly see people you know people are rising up in other areas in solidarity with the other areas. Um, the fear, uh, another fear really, is that what this political class uh, knows how to do is divide and rule, right? Divide and rule is what they've done since the Civil War uh, and, and in the post-war era. And so we're starting to see the, the brewings or, of, of sort of uh, attempts to make this a sectarian issue, you know, to try and really uh, rile up people on, on these base sort of instincts, rather than, you know, t- to sort of break through the solidarity we've seen. When, when, when the Hezbollah and Amal supporters were in downtown Beirut destroying the tents, uh, there were many chanting, Shia, 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 you know, just literally <laughs> saying that we are Shia. Uh, and uh, similarly, I mean, but to a, to a lesser extent, you know, after Hadidi resigned, you had a lot of his Sunni supporters taking to the streets and basically saying, okay, the prime minister has resigned, but we want other people to resign because it's not okay that the Sunni leader is the one who's bearing the brunt of this, you know. so So there are sectarian elements that are starting to come a little bit into the fold, so, so so far, I'd say they've been, you know, resisted. It has not become a sectarian issue yet. But that is the game that I think we will see being played, right? The, the game of, uh, okay, if we can't, you know, beat them, uh, then we'll try to, you know, it, it, well, well, if we can't convince them, you know, to, to leave the streets, if we can't force them to the streets, then we'll force them to fight amongst them, you know, each other. Um, it hasn't worked so far, but I think that's sort of the next stage uh, of this uprising.
0: And, uh, just before we finish, I want to ask you guys to, um, connect what's happening to the wider region, particularly, uh, Syria and Iraq. Um, we, with Syria, we've seen, you know, a lot of the Syrian chants, the exact same chants being adopted by Lebanese protesters, <laughs> including, uh, Yalla Yalhar Michael um, which is the, 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 the original one that the Syrians used, uh, uh, y- Yalla leave, uh, Bashar al-Assad. Um, a lot of uh, flag-waving in solidarity with uh, the the protests also happening right now in Iraq, which are being very bloodily put down uh, with Sudan, with Syria, uh, with other regional countries, um, and also a lot of uh, geopolitical connections between Syria, Iraq, and Lebanon, and further to Iran, I guess.
2: Yeah, um, a number of things. A, I think it's region-specific, so in... You did have, you definitely saw some of it in Beirut. Uh, I would say they have been using the chants. Uh, I don't, so this is just my opinion, obviously my interpretation. I think not everyone knows uh, exactly where all of these chants come from or ne- necessarily how they have been used before, although probably most people do. In in Tripoli, it's been more overt. So in Tripoli, they said like, you know, they, they said we are with you Idlib and... Uh, you do have, uh, because you also have more refugees over there, or at least better integrated, let's say, uh, compared to Beirut, you had a much more uh, comfortable, they have been more comfortable being open about it and that sort of thing. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen ever elsewhere. But you know, you 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 can't tell the difference between a Palestinian and a an Lebanese and a Syrian, obviously, uh, most of the time anyway. And there are many people in Beirut who are uh, protesting who are Palestinians, you know, protesting like uh, with the, uh, with Lebanese and everything, and there's no real separation between the two. That being said, there is definitely some awareness of what's happening in Iraq. Uh, Syria, obviously, everyone knows what's happening. But I wouldn't say uh, yet anyway that a much uh, more intensive or much better um attempt to link things uh that 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 has happened yet i would definitely say that there's echoes and you hear the echoes and the chants and echoes and sometimes you see some flags here and there although usually the the flags are only lebanese flags and sometimes army flags because uh you know things feel fragile already and maybe they don't want to alienate people or there's some hesitation or whatever but if this continues and i think it will I think at some point, depending on how the government reacts, there will be more overt uh, uh, messages of solidarity in between beyond just on social. On social media, there's a lot. There's always a lot on social media. But right, for that right. to actually manifest itself on the streets, uh, most likely is going to take a bit more time. But it, it might happen. It might just happen.
1: I, I think interesting, uh, just off the back of that, is that what, 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 we've, what we're seeing on the streets is, that you know the protesters are not a homogenous block. Yes, there are certain values that or, or demands that everybody has. You know, which was bring down the government, let's have a transitional government uh, that can provide basic services, take us out of the economic crisis, and then create an electoral law that gets rid of sectarianism. Those broadly, most people will agree to. But what you're seeing on the street is there's also definitely blocks of protesters who are more progressive, others who are more nationalist. You know, more pro army. Some are even calling for an army takeover. Um, and so that's kind of uh, a, an interesting fostering of a, of a real politics on the streets. because up till now in Lebanon, politics has pretty much been what's your religion? Uh, what services do you need? OK, here you go. Here's 100 bucks. Buy yourself something nice. Um, but, but now what we're seeing is, is basically on the streets, you'll have protesters leading chants that are like pro-gay rights. Or uh, you know chants like Syria, Nahna you know Syria, we are with you till death, and that makes some Lebanese uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. People who are you know who live in a in a or have a mindset of you know Syrians were here to occupy us. Um, you know there is a, you know there is racism, there is xenophobia, uh, and and so this is sort of an indirect answer to your question: is that it's it's complicated because uh, yes, we are seeing some solidarity with with Syria and with Iraq. But I think a lo- I think if you ask most people, uh, they would probably say, "Let's get our house in order uh, and stay away from some of the more controversial issues." Uh, but at the same time, you have people on the streets who are actively trying to guide this uh, this movement towards a more progressive, you know, value system, you know, of gay rights, of uh, you know, anti misogyny, uh, of solidarity with Syria and and Syrians.
0: And so. We're waiting for a Hezbollah speech, uh, a Nasrullah speech, the leader of Hezbollah later today. It'll probably have been done by the time this episode is released. Um, we've kind of mentioned what you guys are expecting in the coming days and weeks, which is attempts to sectarianize and polarize, because in doing that is there is the political class's salvation, as it has been so many other places, including neighboring Syria. Uh, the more you polarize people, like divide and conquer, basically. Uh, what else are you guys uh, looking to in the coming days?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, okay. So we have Nasrallah's speech today. uh, What we've seen is generally the street doesn't uh, really care too much what politicians say. It'll, you know, usually, I mean, we've seen some pretty bad speeches. And so people have kind of headed to the streets afterwards and just rejected these speeches. Nasrallah bears a bit more weight. Uh, What we expect, I think, from him today or, or, or at least you know, hope to hear is what Hezbollah's position is on on cabinet formation because right now we're basically unsure whether you know Hezbollah and its allies will support Hariri as an ex prime minister or what the game is here. Uh, and you know, this government took nine months to form. Everyone agrees Lebanon doesn't have that much time now, so we do need to see something quickly. So, so, yeah, so going forward today, Nasrallah's speech will we see a position on Hezbollah on you know Hezbollah's uh, vis-a-vis Hariri? And then over the weekend, I mean, weekends usually is a time when we see larger protests take place. It'll be interesting to see whether the you know, mobilization of a large, large scale continues, like we saw on the first Sunday of the revolution, where you had hundreds of thousands, by some estimates, you know, over a million people uh, in the streets across the country.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, definitely, like the, the government is sort of playing a waiting game at the same time as well. Like they're sort of hoping that things die out. But um as I said, I don't I really don't know how to put myself in their minds. Like I don't know if Michelin, for example, is actually being shown everything that's happening. Obviously, there's there's a bit of uh conspiracy theories about it, but I guess it's not really conspiracy theories. Like I just based on his speeches, he doesn't seem to really know what's happening on the ground. He's very disconnected. But how what what this means for the the next few days and next few weeks, I mean Really, I, I can give you some educated guesses, but they can all be wrong. Like, uh, there's no real way of knowing. The main thing, I think, for protesters to do is to really just maintain the momentum and to just get as creative as they get. Yesterday was a good sign of that. Yesterday, as soon as uh, Noan finished his speech, people moved from the ring, where the, they have been doing the roadblock so far, and the uh, the police had, had, had opened it uh, yesterday. They ran down, basically, and they closed the road uh, that's very close to it. Uh, and it's these kinds of, and today, just before we started speaking, there are people uh, trying to block banks because banks are opening today. You know that sort of thing. These uh, type of protests, the more creative they get, the more unpredictable they get. The much ho- like much harder, it will be much harder for the government and its, uh, you know, Shabihai and the others to really crack down. And so there's this bubbling of energy that's happening. That is the, one of the most exciting things of what uh, of this uh, protest for me. Uh, and I, again, I think that it's going to a right place. I cannot really predict, but I guess we'll see. We'll see what Nasrallah says. And then we'll see if Ron is going to speak again next week. And then maybe Nasrallah will speak again after him. I don't know. They, they really like to talk. They really love to talk. So we'll see. And, and just the fact that someone comes out and talks
1: every, every day or two or three uh, is really interesting because, so I, I, I was asking the guy in downtown Beirut, you know, to explain the momentum. Uh, of the protest, the continuing momentum. And he said, listen, if they just shut up and stopped, uh, you know, provoking us every two or three days, and maybe it might fizzle out. But we keep seeing, you know, one politician or the other come and do a speech or a crackdown by security forces, or an attack by Hezbollah, you know, and and so it's just like, well, okay, if you guys keep, you know, poking us, we're going to, you know, come back. And and that's, that's where we are, we're at right now.
0: They're scrambling. They really have no strategy, no no vision, no outlook, and they're just reacting day to day. Um and they have a very poor idea of what it actually takes to rule a country. I I remember that was a very poignant chant that we want a respectable country.
2: Yes. There is a desire for things to just get I wouldn't say get back to normal because we haven't we've never really had a normal But uh, to just get to a point where things are decent, like people just want to live, to put it bluntly, they just want decent things to happen. I don't even think expectations are necessarily super, super high. Like they're not expecting, you know, everything to be perfect uh, overnight or anything like that. They just want a livable present in order to have a livable future. And then like the, the, the impression that I'm getting on the streets and online and everything is that, okay, let's get to that point and at the same time we are building to for what can come after it it's not that we're not doing anything until everything's uh you know the government falls or whatever we're building up towards what might come after and i think it's very important that we do that mm-hmm.
0: so i'll let our listeners know that both of you have been uh, chronicling events on the ground uh very exhaustively um and they can find you know Live, up to, uh, live uh, updates on what's happening, videos from the street on both your Twitter accounts, which will be linked in the description of the podcast. and both of you take care of yourselves today. Um, it's, it's a jungle out there, and <laughs> best of luck in overthrowing these corrupt, incompetent, sectarian criminals.
1: Uh, or, or covering that at least as, as I'm a journalist. <laughs> yeah Yeah.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for having us.